Well, how are we? Good. If you've got a Bible, grab it. We're going to start our time of teaching. First Peter, one Peter, as the British like to say, one Peter. If you listen to a British pastor, they won't say first Peter, they'll say one Peter. One Peter, one Peter, chapter one. So today we get to talk about hope. I love talking about hope. Um, but often hope is fading, is it not? And, and you know what fading hope leads to? Cynicism. And do you know, lots of us are probably on the edge of cynicism. And so I just wanted to start with just a really quick test. If you, if you want to know if you are cynical, here are five questions you can ask yourself. Ready? I know, I know we, we don't like tests, but we got to do this test. Question number one, do you believe that mankind has failed to achieve anything of interest because, of course, the moon landing was faked? <laughs> Is that you? Question two, do you remain convinced that they just throw away all of the recycling on the other end? <laughs> Come on, be honest. This was really convicting for me. Okay, I'm a cynic. Question three, do you have a tendency to put inverted commas around everything that you say? Question four, is it your firm conviction that professional wrestling is completely staged with the outcome of every match determined beforehand? And here's the kicker, just like professional football and professional basketball. <laughs> Serious. Have you ever thought that? And question five. Are you convinced that your dog is only in it for the food? <laughs> now, if you answered yes to any of these, or especially to all of these, you might be a cynic. But is cynicism really all that bad? Uh, many, many think it's actually a better way to live and to think because you're living in reality. Is that true? Is it a better way to live? Well, in 2009 study, and many studies have been done, uh, but the one that I looked at, actually will say that the more cynical you are, the more at risk you are of heart disease, cancer-related disease, and other inflictions that cause early death. So the medical profession would disagree that living a cynical life is a better life. But, you know, long life is not necessarily the best kind of life. So perhaps living longer isn't a better life. Maybe the quality of life is better if you live a cynical life. In fact, many believe that more cynical people are more intelligent than they are. Four research studies proved this. Massive data set. Over 200,000 individuals were uh, interviewed during this study, and it showed that lay people tend to believe in cynical individuals' cognitive superiority. So the study showed that actually most people believe that cynical people are smarter than them. But is this true? Or perhaps cynicism is simply masquerading as wisdom. Well, that's actually what Stephen Colbert <laughs> said. He said this, and I quote, cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but it is the furthest thing from it. Now, who's right? Stephen Colbert or 200,000 individuals? Stephen Colbert. Because a, <laughs> because a further study, there are actually three other studies were done based on a similar, uh, similar data set, around 200,000 individuals from 30 countries, and it debunked these lay beliefs. It actually showed that they were illusionary by revealing this truth, that Cynical people versus less cynical people generally do worse on cognitive ability and academic competency tasks. The study found that, in fact, less competent individuals embraced cynicism unconditionally, and, and, and the report said, suggesting that 
at lower levels of competence holding a cynical worldview might represent an adaptive default strategy to avoid the potential costs of falling prey to others' cunning. So, here is a lovely fable that will help you place yourself. It's a fable about a carrot, an egg, and coffee beans. Do you know this one? Did you read this one as a child? Each of these objects faced the same adversity, boiling water, but each reacted differently. The carrot went in strong and hard and unrelenting. However, over time, it softened and became weak. The egg, well, it was fragile. It had a thin outer shell that protected its very liquid interior. And over time, what happened? It began to harden. The ground coffee beans were unique. After they were put in the boiling water, what actually happened? They changed the water. And the water was given a tasteful aroma. Which one do you choose to be? Last week we talked, as I said, about this letter written to these elect exiles, those who God had chosen to live in this world as resident aliens, meaning this was not their ultimate home, but they were called to be here for a reason. And they were facing this intense, hot, boiling persecution and scrutiny because of their association with the Christian church and their worship of Jesus as their God and their hope and their meaning, and their purpose. And as we look back on history, what do we see? Did they turn soft? Did they harden? The answer is no. Partly because of this encouraging letter from Peter, something else happened. Something very unique happened. A funny thing happened. The more they were persecuted, the more they were held down, the more they were burned at the stake for their faith, they actually began to exude the aroma of Christ, which is love and joy and peace and patience and mercy and grace towards their neighbors, towards their enemies. And what happened? Do you know what happened? That this tiny sect of Christians, do you know what happened? They convinced an entire empire to begin to worship Jesus. The great Roman Empire became the Christian Empire. And many, many, many people began to worship their God. Who they believed to be Jesus of Nazareth. God in the flesh. I love these wise words of a doctor and one of the leading proponents of hospice care, the development of hospice care in America in the 20th century. Her name's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I think we have the quote up behind me. She said this, I quote, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people do not just, I'll add, accidentally happen. That's the message of Peter. God is creating beautiful people. And he often does it through hardship and suffering. So in our own age of cynicism, what will become of us? Will we be made into beautiful people by the struggles and oppression that we may face? Or will we soften and give up our convictions? Or perhaps harden and become so unbearable to the rest of the society in which we live? Or... If we follow the way forward that God has painted for us through the apostles' writings, might we become 
Will we effervesce the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ into our city so that people might see that God is not just an idea or a religion, but a living, present, and personal help in our time of need? Now, I could just stop the sermon there. (laughs) But that's the question. In this cultural moment, when studies show that people are becoming more cynical at younger and younger ages, what is the key to becoming this third kind of coffee bean? What advice do we need? Well, what advice did God give through the Apostle Peter to the people in his day who were dealing with something not so different than what we're dealing with? How did they hear it, and then how did they put it in action so that they might have actually changed the water around them? Let's read 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 3, as we try to figure out what was it that they had that changed their world. Are you ready? After his introduction, which we talked about last week, Peter gets into it. He says, blessed, which just means praised. Praised be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you uh, through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels longed to look. Here's what he's saying. You know things now, and this was true of Peter's day, this is true of our day. You know things now that the saints of old longed to know. So you should rejoice even more. Now here, I want to read verse 13 because there's an important action step. 13 really moves into now action based on what we've just said is true. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, here it is, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, a few times here, he's talked about this revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about when Jesus comes back again to establish his kingdom in full. What is only happening now in part will happen one day in full when Jesus is not far, where we cannot now see him with our own eyes, but he will come close and set up his new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. And we don't know exactly what that's going to look like or how it's going to play out, so we shouldn't talk too much about that, but we do know it will happen. And when we long for that and look for that in our salvation is revealed as true and good, that will be a glorious moment and we should rejoice as we think about it. In the meantime, he's saying, you must set your hope somewhere. So here's the logic of of all 
of those verses, all 10 of those verses, the logic goes like this. The argument goes like, proposition one, there is more than one kind of hope. You see that? There is more than one kind of hope, and you have to choose to make one of those hopes the thing that you set your life on. Okay? Proposition one. Proposition two, one type of hope is living, and other kinds of hope are not living. Because he says you've been, giving a living hope, uh, been given a living hope. Proposition three. If you set your life on living hope, which is in Jesus, as we'll see, it will result in a life of praise. Because as you wait for your salvation to be revealed in its full glory, you can't help but praise if you set your life on this living hope. And then he says this. This is the result of all three of those propositions. The result is, this life of praise will be the remedy that you have, that all others do not have, to live in this life of discouragement and disappointment without wavering, without faltering, without going back on your convictions. And so the question is, are you living into, are you setting your hope on the living hope, or are you setting your hope on another kind of hope? Okay? That's the full argument there. So let's take a look at what is this living hope. What makes hope in Jesus living hope versus other kinds of hope? It's important. I hope that's clear. I just want to say it again. To say, I'm not saying the only kind of hope is Christian hope. I'm not, so you might say, I know some really hopeful people. Well, they don't know Jesus, so, so maybe hope something else. No, there's many kinds of hope. The question is what's different about this kind of hope that makes it what Peter says, living. So that's what we're going to look at today. So come back now with me to, to verse 3. Blessed or praised be God and uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven. A lot, a lot of amazing things in just these two verses. This is where we'll be spending most of our time today. What does this born again mean? Born again. Well, the first thing I'll uh, mention is the according to. If you're here last week, you remember um, in, in verses one, uh, 2, he talks about according to the foreknowledge of God. So he uses the same word again, according to his great mercy. And, and according to is a past action, meaning God has already chosen to have mercy on you. So if you wonder... I don't know if God could have mercy on somebody like me. He's already chosen to have mercy on you. That's done. That's a past action of God. His bent towards you is mercy. Mercy meaning not giving you what you deserve, which is immediate death because of your rebellion against the living God. So he's already chosen mercy for you. And then he does something else. It says for those of us who has believed, what actually happened behind the scenes was that he caused you to be born again. What does this mean, born again? Well, God realizes that because of our sin and our rebellion of putting him to the side and, and going our own way, that actually something has begun to die within us. Our heart is not right. Heart being not our physical heart, though that too is dying, but our heart being uh, the essence of who we are. And so Jesus told this to Nicodemus. He said, listen, Nicodemus, if you want to inherit eternal life, you must be born again. And this being born again is something that God causes in those of us who are his and turn to him. We are born again to a new kind of life. Literally, our essence, our being, our soul is reborn within us. We have a new heart. We get rid of our heart of stone and we're given a heart of flesh and it is a new spiritual heart that endures 
for all time. It's a beautiful promise. And it's a promise that only God can cause. So he has caused us to be born again. Born again to what? To a living hope. So if you have been born again, you now have access to this new kind of hope that you've never had access to before. It's a living hope. Our hope is being remade. Many things in our life are being remade, including the way we hope. So, again, it's so important to see here that this is something that we cannot cause to happen to ourselves. We cannot just choose to have a different kind of hope. We must ask God to give us a new kind of hope. So as, if we're, as we're going through uh, the talk today and you're saying, I would, I would way rather be hoping in, in this living hope than in the ways I'm hoping. If you feel like that's what you want, just realize the place you go is not to me. <laughs> it's not to go back to get another degree at school. It's not a new job. It's you must go to Jesus You must go to God and ask him, would you help me be born again so that I might have this living hope? Okay? We've got to understand where the source of this hope is. Okay. So, you are rebirthed spiritually to this new kind of hope. And it's a living hope. Now, where does this hope come from? It is through the resurrection of who? Jesus Christ. Christ, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you, if you don't know the story of Jesus, he came onto the scene, born into an ennoble family, nothing special about him. His dad was a carpenter. He worked as a carpenter for many years, and then uh, he began a public ministry where he'd go and teach and heal people, and um, he started saying some really crazy things like, um, I and the Father are one. I am the son of God. I've come here to save God's people. And people were like, that's weird. (laughs) And uh, some of them really didn't like it because he was gathering a great following and people were believing that actually this was the Messiah who had been promised in the Old Testament. And so what ended up happening is um, sort of the religious elites, uh, they got upset. They got him arrested for claiming to be God. And they sort of worked him through a, uh, really a false trial. They convicted him of what's uh, the sin of blasphemy, which required death. And he was hung upon a Roman cross and executed after just three years of his public ministry. He was dead. But then something happened. All of his followers started telling people that they had seen him resurrected that he wasn't dead, that in fact God had brought him back to life to prove that he was indeed who he said he was, the Son of God. So that's the story of Jesus. And what Peter's saying is, I saw him, I was with him, he was resurrected, and the living hope that you're given when you're reborn comes when you realize Jesus is not dead, he is alive. So this rebirth happens because Jesus himself was brought back to life. He was born again. And we too can be born again like Jesus was born again. You have to understand the full story. You have to understand when Peter says this, that he was there. This isn't an idea to him. He was there. He knew that Jesus had died on Friday. And he was hanging limp dead on a Roman cross. All the disciples were there. And guess what happened when they saw him hanging on the cross? They became cynics. And they ran. And they denied knowing Jesus. And they kept silent. And they hid away. And they began to hope in other things because their hope had been crushed on a cross. You see this? But then came Sunday, and these cynics changed. Something drastic happened. They began coming out of hiding, 
coming out of the shadows. And they started standing in the middle of public squares claiming that Jesus Christ was alive, knowing very well that that would get them killed. And eventually, 11 out of the 12 disciples were killed for claiming that Jesus was resurrected. What would cause such a change? Well, most, the majority of scholars, even secular non-Christian historians, now agree that something like a resurrection appearance must have happened to make this group of people change from being hopeless, cynical, dejected, fearful, hiding, running, powerless, poor men, and suddenly they become the leaders of this new movement. Not just Christians, but most thinking, secular, non-Christian historians believe that something like a resurrection happened. Now, they might say, well, it was a hallucination, or they thought they saw him, or whatever they say, but they can't get away from the fact that nobody goes, nobody changes so drastically from being so cynical and hopeless to being full of hope and alive and fearless in the face of sure death. So what happened? Peter tells you what happened. I saw the resurrected Jesus, and it gave me a living hope. It's amazing. So this is the first thing that makes hope living. Jesus. He is not dead. He is not just a great teacher of old. He is very much alive His disciples saw him, over 500 more people claimed to have seen him, and they say that after some time, 40 days perhaps around there, of living and walking and eating amongst them, Peter himself eating, touching Jesus, that Jesus said, I must go, and he ascended to heaven so that he could send his spirit, so that his message could travel beyond Jerusalem and what one man could do, and spread out to the whole world so that everybody could hear about this potentiality of living hope because of the resurrection. It's living because Jesus is living. He's sitting right now at the right hand of God the Father, in heaven, allowing his message to get to the ends of the earth so that everybody might have a chance to respond. Hope is living because Jesus is living. Hope is alive because God brought Jesus back to life. Hope is living because we have the spirit of Jesus living inside of us if we have been born again and received the gift of grace. That's why hope, our hope, is living. Now, verse 4. We have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, when Peter would have said this, oftentimes inheritance, particularly in the Old Testament, which is uh, the writings before Jesus by the people of God, inheritance was always tied to the promised land. Uh, but as we see today, that land has always been under siege. It is always perishing, and sometimes the people of God get it back, and then it's taken again, and it's being defiled, and its, it's glory seems to be fading. And, and so what Peter is pointing us to is a kind of inheritance, even a kind of inheritance that I would say is the land that is in the future. So, when we think of this inheritance, we should picture physical, material, tangible land. A land that is not defiled by evil, by those who hate God, a land that cannot be taken away or taken by Rome as it was when Peter was writing this, and it will not fade away with time. This is a different kind of land. Now, I still think Jesus himself is promising that land. He says this in John chapter 14. You can go look it up later. He says this. Let not, he says this to his disciples while he is still on earth. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If you've ever heard somebody say uh, mansions, that's wrong. He says rooms. And, and then he goes on to say this. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know that where, where I am going, you know where I'm going. And, and Thomas, he's the doubter, he says, he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And this is where Jesus famously says to Thomas, hey, Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. But all of that is in the framework of this promised place. And the, word, the Greek word for place here, tapos, is where we get topography and things like that. And most often it's used of a region of land. So tell me about the tapos. Tell me about the region of land that this will take place. So I think Jesus is promising a physical space that is not a kingdom of this world, but a kingdom in which Christ will bring in his heavenly kingdom when he remakes all things, but it's a real land, a lot closer to the land you know about, but in another way different because it's undefiled, it's untainted, and the soil will not war against us, and the ground will bear all the fruit that it's intended to bear, and there no one will steal from the harvest of the land. What could you say about this land? It's truly living as it intended to be. In all the ways that land is supposed to come alive, this land, this place that Jesus is preparing for you right now, is fully alive. And so that's why our hope is living, because it's in a living place. Again, we don't know the details of how he remakes this world. Not going to get into that here, but this new place is alive. But guess what? It's not just the land that's new and alive. Jesus also promises us that we too will inherit new bodies. Just like he was resurrected to a physical new body, you could call it a heavenly body. It's actually what sedaris means in the Latin, heavenly body. Just like his heavenly body, he promises us we will have a resurrection too. And, and our resurrection will be to a new body that is undefiled, untainted, imperishable, just like his new resurrection body is undefiled, untainted, and imperishable. We will be raised to that. And we will be in this new place, this new land, with a living Jesus and new living bodies that never perish and decay. That's the promise of Scripture. It's a living hope. Now, you see how different this is than the world. So the world cannot have the same kind of hope that we have because the world says YOLO, if you don't know what that means, you only live once. And it's not nearly as catchy, but the Christians have been saying for 2,000 years, YOLT. <laughs> you only live twice. If you get nothing out of this sermon, I want you to remember that. You only live twice. Now, that's actually different than what other religions and worldviews might tell you. If, if it's a constant cycle of reincarnation, that'd be something different. It's different than what the secular world will tell you, you only live once. It's yolt. Christians have always had, always had a branding problem. But yolt <laughs> is what the Bible teaches. Now, if YOLO is true, then the Apostle Paul will say this. If you, if you want to turn there, you could. It's 1 Corinthians. It's just going to be a few pages back in your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I don't have a life verse, I have a life chapter, and 1 Corinthians 15 is my life chapter. So you should make it your life chapter, and you should read it often. It is the most amazing promise, I think, in all of Scripture, and, and it talks about the resurrection of Christ and these new heavenly resurrected bodies. And Paul goes through this long argument about if Jesus hasn't been raised, then we won't be raised. So here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 19. If you're not there, that's okay. Just listen very intently. If YOLO is true, that's basically what Paul's saying. If YOLO is true, then this is also true. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised, that's verse 12, from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How can some of you say YOLO? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, if YOLO is true, then not even Christ has been raised. See the argument? And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, Christian preaching, is in vain. And 
your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that YOLO, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ, trusting in Christ, they have actually perished. If YOLO is true. Luckily, Paul doesn't end there. He also says, but if YOLT is true, then this life is but a blip on an everlasting timeline, and we should rejoice in the thought of this new heavenly body. So go with me later in chapter 15, starting in verse 35. He says this, If Yolt is true, but some of you will ask, if Yolt is true, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, Paul says, what you sow does not, not come to life until it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. He's using an agricultural analogy. But God gives a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another for animals, another for bird, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What was sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, or you could say defilement. It is raised in glory. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, he's referring to Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was formed from the earth, a man of dust. You go back to Genesis and read how God created humanity. The second man, that's Jesus, is from heaven, meaning Jesus came to earth from heaven through Mary, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's all of us, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, yolt, when we're born again and given new resurrected bodies. That, that are just like Jesus' resurrected body. Unreal. The promises. So hope is living. Hope is alive. Because the inheritance that God has promised to us. Because that thing that we hope in is teeming with life. With new bodies. With new land. Where there is no sin. No decay. Where Jesus has removed all of that by his blood poured out on the cross for our sin. And it will not perish over time. It does not rot. It does not go old. There will be no hip surgeries. No doctors required. Sorry doctors. Get a new profession. I also won't have a profession. Everyone will know about Jesus. I don't have to tell anybody. So we'll all be getting new professions. We'll be learning how to work the land. It'll be fantastic. And we'll be worshiping the living Jesus Christ who stands in un defiled pure light in front of us unreal Peter is painting this picture and he says and it's kept for you in heaven who by God's power you are being guarded through faith no matter what you're going through you see this hope uh, is so alive but it's not just a hope for here. Though the kingdom comes in part, it will come in full one day. What does that mean? You have to be future looking. You cannot expect to have everything God promises you right here and right now. And if you do, you'll just be discouraged because your hope is kept for you in heaven. So if you want to know the strongest, most tangible expression of any kind of world that the hope has to offer, do you know where you should go? 
You do not go to the graduation from high school or a graduation from college. You do not sit in a boardroom of the greatest entrepreneurs at Google or Amazon. Do you know where you go? You go down to your local hospital or retirement center and you ask them at the front desk, who in your place of work is the oldest Christian that you know with the strongest faith? And you go and you look them in the eye. And I guarantee you, you will see in their eyes a kind of hope that you've never seen before. When you hear them talk, and knowing undoubtedly they are suffering physically, but you see in their eyes something that is so alive because they are so close to the inheritance that's been kept for them in heaven. If you've never had that experience, I pray that you do, of talking to an elderly saint who is months, weeks, days away from going home to see their living Savior. And you will see a hope in them that you cannot explain. And why is this? Because for so long they have waited. And it's living hope because day by day and year by year it grows stronger, not weaker. That's why it's alive. And so many years, think of it, 100 years of year by year, your hope growing stronger. And then, on top of that, every other hope is virtually dead. You see that? Because we all hope in a lot of things. But when you're on your deathbed, you realize, I can't hope in my beauty or my money or my retirement or my physical uh, ability or even romantic love. It's all dead. Already, So the only thing left is this hope that's been growing in you, yet that hope is so powerful and so alive that you can't help but see it. That's why that's the place you go. What a strange, what a strange action <laughs> to go find hope in that place. <sighs> Praise be to God for those saints who are so alive, more alive than most of us, yet their bodies are so close to physical death. It's unreal. So what are those dying hopes? What are those dying hopes that we might also set our life upon? Those dying hopes that are fading and defiled and perishable, what are they? Well, they're very, very common. And I've hoped on all of these. So I'm not saying it, I'm just, I want you to recognize it. Money is a dying hope. If in 1950 you had $1, guess what it's worth today? You just put it in your pocket and you, you held on to it. It's worth one-twentieth of what it was then. It's fading. You see that? You say, well, I'm smarter than that. I invested it in the stock market. If you invested $1 in 1950 in the Dow Industrial Average, you would have $314 in 2019. You say, there it is. Hope proved. And here's what I'd say to you. In 1950, for $1, you could buy a ticket to a, a professional baseball game. Or you could put that money in the stock market. And you could get to today, and you'd be, say you're 10 years old when you did that, you'd be 80 years old, and you could go to 15 Major League Baseball games. You say, well, that seems hopeful to me. What 80-year-old wants to drive downtown 15 times... <laughs> Find parking, <laughs> go in, and sit there for 15 baseball games. You see what I'm saying? I'm not saying that there aren't 80-year-olds that would love to do that and do do that. What I'm saying is, if that's your hope, that's a fading hope. So we try to talk ourselves out of it. You say, well, listen, I'm not going to do that and let it sit in the bank account. I'm going to invest it in real estate that I can use. I'm going to buy something on the beach. I'm going to put that money and I'm going to buy something on the beach. And I would just say to you, congratulations <laughs> that you have the ability to do that, but not so fast. Surely don't buy real estate, if you were buying back in the 1930s, on uh, the beach town of Hull, England. You know about Hull, England? 90% of the buildings in Hull, England were bombed and destroyed in 1941 during an air raid of World War II. You say, well, that's fear tactics. Here's the deal. 
between 2005 and 2017, in our own country, $16 billion worth of lost home value due to the rising flood risks on coastal shores of the United States. Guess what? Zillow, you can trust them because they're from Seattle, reports, or not reports, projects that 1.9 million homes will be underwater by the turn of the century because of global warming. So just don't be any of those 1.9 million people that store up your treasure right on the shores of the American coast. I put this picture up here. This is actually just to, to show you that I didn't just make that up. This is a list of the 10 metro areas hardest hit by rising seas over the next many decades. Look at Upper Township, New Jersey. 56% of the homes will be underwater. Now, if the MTV hit TV show, Jersey Shore, <laughs> didn't keep you from moving to New Jersey, this should. 56% <laughs> will be underwater. Stay right where you're at. Get a home in the hills. My point is this. All the other hopes that we might be able to invest in in this life are fading, defiled, perishable. Beauty, our bodies. Believe it or not, I used to be an athlete. The body falls apart. Beauty falls apart. I was never quite beautiful, but beauty does fall apart. I've talked to people. <laughs> Pleasure is always fleeting. Pain always rises with age. Romantic love will always keep you looking back rather than looking forward. But if yolt is true and not YOLO, then hope or a type of hope is possible that is not dying but is living, that is not going away but coming more into view. This is the hope that Peter says, set your life on this. So how do you do it? How can you tap into this hope? I'm going to just give you three things to close. You must know Jesus. He's the only one that's defeated death. He's the one preparing a place for you. It's his spirit that causes you to be born again to this living hope. So if you don't know Jesus, you can't have living hope. But here's the great news. Anyone can know Jesus. Anyone. And you could just ask him to give you that hope. You just pray a simple prayer. Say something like this. Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know this hope that we spoke of today. Jesus, I know that, you, that, you have looked, that I have looked for other things as more important than you. And I know that I have transgressed. I have rebelled. I have sinned. I have been disobedient to your will, to my way in the world. Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. Help me to live a life for you and not for myself. Please, Jesus, send your spirit to make me born again. That's, that's all it takes. So yes, it only comes through Jesus, but anybody can pray that prayer. The second thing, you cannot love your cynicism. Some people can never come near to see Jesus for who he truly is because they love their cynicism so much. It becomes their comfort, it becomes their constant, it becomes their companion and their comforter. It is their help in times of trouble, their friend in a dark place. Jesus needs to become that for you. Your cynicism can no longer be that thing. Jesus has to replace it. Your cynicism is your hope. Do you see that? Because it's the thing that you say, in the end, it will prove true. In the end, when this whole thing comes crashing down, it will be the only thing left standing, my cynicism. I can't give that up. It's what makes me go. It's what makes me able to step into the future. You need to let it go. You cannot love your cynicism. You must turn and love Jesus more. The third thing, you can't be an accountant. <laughs> you gotta be a baker. Now I say that, some of you snickered because I was an accountant for four years. I worked for Deloitte doing um, audit and um, I don't mean that you literally need to quit your accounting job. Here's what I mean. Accountants do this. 
they account <laughs> for things that have already happened. They account for it. They count it up. They make reports. And they do tend to be risk-averse. Taking stock of, of something that somebody else has built. The baker is so different. Here's what the baker does. He's a fascinating archetype. They say, you know what? I'm going to take every... I know this isn't actually how it happens. I'm, just be with me. Um, I'm going to take everything I own and I'm going to start a bakery. And you know what I'm going to buy? I'm going to buy some fungus. That's the most important thing that I can buy. A really nice stock of fungus. It's called yeast. And I'm going to put all my hope in this living organism to create for me a full business. And out of that comes living, breathing finances for my family and sustenance for all the people that come and visit my bakery. And it took the vision of the baker to see that this very small thing to hope in could bring so much life to everything around it. Who will you be? The accountant who holds so tightly or the baker who hopes in the living power of Jesus to resurrect your own life, this world, this land, our physical bodies, but it takes hope because you can't see it now. You need the faith to trust in Jesus because this hope is alive and I want you to have it. I want you to tap into it. I want you to be coffee beans. I don't want your hope to fade away as your life goes so that you just become old, cynical people holding on to your money and your property and your wealth until the day you die. Praise God that he's given us new life. Let's pray. Father, I know I struggle with cynicism. I pray that you give me more faith to set my life and my hope on Jesus Christ and his resurrection and the future inheritance that you've promised to us, God. Help my cynicism, God. I struggle so deeply with this. I do believe that dogs are in it for the food. God, help me. Help me to know that you did create dogs for something so much more. I know that you did, but yet my cynicism gets in the way. God, just crush that in me. God, I pray for my friends. Crush their cynicism. May they be reborn by the Spirit. If they do not know Jesus, God, maybe today they ask Jesus to come near to them. They ask for forgiveness of sin so that they might be reborn to new living hope and resurrection life by your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.